and welcome back to Bad Impressions. We have a very exciting show for you tonight featuring Nicole Parlapiano, who works at Tinder. We have a lot of exciting things to discuss, and we're very excited to be back. Thank you, as always, to Church Girls for our intro, outro, and mid-tro music. But Nicole, we'll turn it over to you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Parlapiano, and I am the VP of Marketing at Tinder. Happy to be here. We're very excited to have you. So I think one of the big things that's on everyone's mind is that impending iPhone update that everyone is going to be asked to download soon. And I feel like that's a great place for us to kick off. Maybe by the time this podcast comes out, it will have been out already and we will all be frantically running around trying to figure out what that means for our paid media and our marketing mixes. So Nicole, what is your take on that? And are you ready for that to come tomorrow, the next day, next week? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you guys know me, but do you hear the calm in my voice? Like it's extremely calm right now, which is not, not typical for me. I usually run pretty hot and nervous, but I think, you know, it's going to happen any day now. I think that we, what we do know is for 14.5 is in beta And I think it's now rearing its head, like it's coming and it's coming soon. And I've been hearing recently some more real conversations on how people are going to be navigating, but it feels a little late to be having these real conversations when we've known, and this was announced in July that it's coming down the pipe. And there really hasn't been much conversation, not conversation coming from the ad tech community, not conversation coming from the platforms, except for a little bit of fighting and banter. And certainly not coming from like any of the agency partners or leadership. Is that what you guys are seeing on your end too? Well, first I'd like to distance myself from this whole problem by stating (laughs) that I have an Android. Uh, So don't blame me. I've been exposing all of my data compliantly like a good advertiser. And so everyone who's always made fun of me for my Android phone, you know, I I just want to get that out there. But in your green texts. Yes, Randy, my green texts. You're also like the part of the demo where we're like, do we really care about Android users? Mm." Exactly. You shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) When you're, you know, people say like a bunch of guys on a floor mattress in their parents' basement plotting against the Republic, you know, I'm just like, they're not wrong. Yeah. (laughs) You're like last in line of the people that I want for Tinder, 100%. Listen, I think that what it's going to bring and why I feel so calm is because I think we spent a lot of years toiling and optimizing and layering on technology and feeling such, such confidence in the money that we're spending when I really don't think that any of the things we were doing or the ways we were measuring or the tools that we bought into or the MTA attribution models, nothing worked, nothing was perfect, nothing was for real. So I think we can stop all the swirling and activity and optimization to death. And we can go back to something much more simple, which is our focus. And the primary reason why we exist is to connect with consumers in authentic ways and connect our brands. It's not to follow people around and hit them at a moment of vulnerability and weakness you know, that's not what marketing was ever intended to be at its highest value. And I think the past, I would say 10 years, eight years, we really lost sight of the human element of marketing and let everything else, like the numbers lead us down a path that I don't know was 
brand positive, uh, to be honest. So I think that it actually makes people think a lot more and companies think a lot more about what's contextual, where should we be based on the type of consumers that we want to attract and how should we be in those spaces that feel real and authentic and make people love you instead of converting them in a creepy moment when a sale is coming. I mean, there's that too. And I think there's still be a place for DR calls to action, but I, I feel like we were relying and putting so much resources and money into performance marketing, into what we would call also growth marketing and felt like that those were the only levers we had was all this digital hoopla based on data that we don't even have any confidence in, in what that was. And I think the biggest thing that we'll see and the, you know, the one to really hurt here is going to be Facebook. It's very obvious they're going to have the hardest time with this transition. So if you are an advertiser and if Facebook is your primary acquisition channel, you know, that's a problem. And, you know, I feel prepared. I think more than prepared because we, we've been trying and testing different ways to open up new channels and, and figure out like what works prior to this happening. So it's either like, are you going to fight the cause and cry about it? I mean, it's happening. You just have to kind of see where it's going. Right. It's a great opportunity. You know, you mentioned, obviously there've been a lot of brand negative moments and possibly just not great for the state of humankind moments that have happened due to this, even, you know, the most cynical people I have talked to a couple who realized that they kind of just abandoned any concept of what's really incremental or strong evidence-based marketing in this whole realm. You know, they've all been out there, you know, plowing money into these platforms that a lot of people are recognizing now are just exceptionally good at getting in front of somebody who was likely to convert anyway. To be honest, I don't know too many organizations that had a full MTA model that captured everything from impression and injection to conversion. And, you know, if we're looking at everything as click-based, you see degradation of that, especially as you see younger generations coming into position of buying power, like the Gen Zers, they don't click on shit. (laughs) They don't click. They watch stuff. They watch video. That's their main medium. So I think if you are a marketer that had a much younger demo, you were finding that it was very frustrating to even operate on a last touch, which is, you know, in good, better, best, it's better than some people's models, but it actually doesn't capture what is now behavior of a generation that they don't necessarily go to Google to find all of their answers. They go into social, their whole journey of how they're exposed and doing due diligence before they make a purchase or make a decision is so much more fragmented than millennials or boomers. You would make decisions like not run video because we're not getting as many conversions off of video efficiently. Well, that's stupid. Video is the best format to get any message across. And it's also the only format that that generation ingests, right? It just never made sense. I think it'll be good And I think in terms of marketing organizations, and we'll get to the agency piece of this later, but in marketing orgs, like we've built these like really weird silos within a marketing organization 
that performance marketing is different than brand marketing is different than growth marketing is different than engagement marketing. And how is that possible? And you have all of these little siloed teams running at objectives that often are at conflict with each other or often not aligned. And they're on the same marketing team for the same company. I mean, doesn't that just seem insane? What a waste of time and people and, and energy to not all be firing at the same things. That brand would be operating in a way that growth doesn't agree with and performance marketers don't have any purview into what brand and growth are doing just seems strange because there's, you know, an ROI based objective. There's a growth based objective that might not be ROI immediately. And then you have a brand objective, which is, you know, that's really equity driving over a three to four year term. So I think the all teams should be aligned around all of those things. And the, you know, the idea that we need to make money bring people in so that we can grow because that if you don't grow and you're not making money, you know, you're ending up being a boring company. And then the third is how do you build a brand that's memorable, that has a place in people's hearts and minds so that when things happen, which they often do, people have a predisposed feeling and vibe on the brand. So when you talk about the two people that are crying the most about all this, and you're not hearing much about Google, but it's obviously Facebook and Apple and how each are handling the response to this whole data privacy. And I think it really shows how Apple looks like a gangster and is being lauded and is, is just like pulling gangster moves that are for the consumer. And, you know, Tim Cook can say just three sentences and sound so smart and so above it all and so intelligent. And then you have Facebook trying to take out ads to convince people that this is wrong when you're going up against one of the most iconic and beloved brands that America has had over the past 30 years. There is no winning. And I think that that is the difference is that Apple is a company that invested in brand at the beginning. So when things like this happen that are just big policy and shifts and power plays that happen at the industry level, people are going to side with the brand that they like, the brand that they use, the beloved brand. They're not going to side with the brand that they use as a utility that didn't build a relationship with its consumers. So I think even in the two biggest players that we're seeing and how, how this plays out, where everyone is sort of leaning towards is towards the one that really always had just such a strong brand presence and brand building where Facebook never did that. So yeah, I was going to ask you what you <laughs> thought about those Facebook ads, the ones where Facebook was like acting like they were saving small business. And there were all those like full page New York times ads. I don't know. Cause I think what you just said rings so true. It's like, yeah, I mean, I think about all those heartwarming Apple commercials where you're like, yeah, wow, I'm really happy. I have an iPhone and an iPad and a MacBook and all of those things. And like, I mean, Facebook, I think of Mark Zuckerberg and I'm like, ew. Yeah. I mean, so here's the thing. I'm very curious about marketing orgs and marketing design and the POV on marketing. And because I've been more so on the tech side of things for a few years now, I think it's very funny how tech approaches marketing. And I found it really illuminating because the product organizations at these tech companies run everything. Whereas if you're at a CPG company or a consumer electronics company, marketing runs everything. And because there's really no difference between two deodorants on the shelf 
you know, their packaging is different, but their ingredients aren't that different. It's the marketing that drives the pull from the shelves and drives the revenue. In this emergence of tech platforms, I think they came out and they had such sticky and beloved products that they didn't feel like they needed marketing. You know, you had a product that everyone was using, that everyone was on and you start to release new features and then they become a thing and everyone's using it and they didn't really have to market and they didn't really think about marketing themselves as a brand for what they stand for. The first campaigns we really saw from Facebook in a meaningful way were after the allegations, what was it, 2017 with all the Russia investigation. That was the first time we, we heard from them. And you don't want to be building a brand in an oh shit moment. Like it's kind of like too late, kind of hard to have advocacy in the face of like some pretty defaming things, which are going to happen as a business owner. So I think often because you have good product and because you're so performance and analytics driven that you're hiring growth marketers and you're hiring performance marketers and brand is on the back burner for a really long time. And for some reason, there is this idea that brand is a waste of money or fluff or not needed or not seen as necessary, where a lot of the companies that I talk to that are trying to start something, I usually advise because they're like, I'm trying to hire a performance marketer or a growth marketer. Who do you know? I always try to say like, you have to start with brand. And then once you start with brand and you have a clear strategy for what your brand is, what it stands for, how it's going to behave, how it shows up where it inserts itself, you know, what kind of talent and partners you want to work with. After that's established, it's easy to do the performance and the growth stuff. That's easy. But if you don't have a good vision of what that is, and you're just dependent on the product or dependent on like programmatic buys to grow your user base, it's not going to accelerate the way that like investing in brand on the upfront would, which we saw in, you know, Airbnb's IPO. Like they were another one that got ahead of it really early. So I think one of the things talking about brand versus like performance marketing, especially someone who kind of lives in the performance marketing kind of space and kind of flexes around, but when you need the impact from brand marketing and when you need it as like Facebook kind of in this situation needs it, it can't be bought. So right. uh, yeah. yeah. It's definitely something that needs to be like at the foundation or, you know, it's, it's a pillar that's being built at the same time. It, it can't be an afterthought because Apple's winning this right now, just in the court of public opinion, removing it from like, is this good or is this bad? Well, no opinion there. The public thinks that this is good. So it's good unequivocally. And so Facebook's just going to have a massive uphill battle about that. And a lot of that is kind of attributed to all the work that Apple has done, both in terms of making you feel like some allegiance to, to the brand in terms of the, not just the, the products, because they're getting more and more expensive and the differences in the products are incremental in terms of like what you're actually getting and paying for. But you have this connection to this brand. You think that this brand is doing good things at scale. And so that's what you're wanting to be a part of. And that's why you're going to just side with them, you know, but you also use your phone to reach Facebook and you probably use both simultaneously at the same time. And that same experience between the two, the Apple device gets, gets way more like credence or affinity than, than Facebook itself does. What I wonder is, is this a move that will make government take notice and will like Google be forced to do the same or are they just going to let them ride on completely different POVs? Because I think the difference is, is Google is dependent on ad revenue. <laughs> they're, they're part of the system and the device. We see it happening just at the start, but I wonder if it'll become something like next level GDPR 
you know, I, don't, I haven't been following too much about what's happening in Europe, if it will just become standard. And, you know, like, I'm like Lee, I, I didn't never cared about anyone using my data. I'm like, good, send me ads that are more tailored to me. It never personally bothered me, but I think it's because we know what's underneath the hood. I think we also know what suppression is underneath the hood. Like what products and brands that I maybe want marketed to me that like Facebook won't let be marketed to me. Like for instance, CBD drinks, maybe I want to know all of them. How do I find out about them? Why can't I Google it? Why can't I find the information that I need? Why can't someone serve me ads based on that? I live in the state of California where this is perfectly legal, but the big dogs have decided I cannot get the information that I need or get ads served to me. That doesn't really make sense. It's a very interesting point. We are seeing a lot of states get more progressive around what they're allowing and changing the law of the land. And while advertising dollars may be a bit of a trailing indicator, hence some of these platforms are a little reluctant. Nicole, you're privy just through your constant, diligent, independent research and awareness in the space of some particularly not so salacious or bad things in most people's opinions that are still quite held up when it comes to organic content allowance and advertising on certain platforms. And I think this is a great segue to maybe talk a little about a few of those that I honestly had no idea about a few of these things until you mentioned them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all know how restrictive some of the platforms are to run ads. We've all ran alcohol, we've ran financial services and all of that seems to make sense. But one of the things that I noticed when I, you know, started at Tinder, I was trying to get under the hood of how we're running Facebook ads and so couldn't figure out like why there was just a lack of scale given there's such a massive opportunity for dating and Tinder. And then, you know, we uncovered that there's just a lot of prohibitive targeting restrictions on companies that are in what is considered the dating category. And, you know, we're held back by people having relationship status on Facebook and Instagram. We can only run ads to single people, people who have identified as single or that have chosen nothing. We can't put any ads in front of people that are married or in a relationship or any of those types of relationship indicators, which to me felt like extremely prohibitive. Um, And it actually like, it took away a lot of the audience that we could be in front of. And given like we're in just a more casual dating space, like you never know when anyone's going to become single. It's still important to stay top of mind. You all know, I mean, I'm married, but I think if I wasn't to be married tomorrow, which fucking it could happen, I should be able to know. I know the sites that I would go on to date somebody like, should you not be running ads targeting me now? I'm not offended by them. So I find it very interesting when platforms are playing a moral high ground that seems to be very rooted in conservative policies. When, you know, this is America, the people that work at these companies is very young. Who are we to have judgment on things like relationships, marriage, any of those things? That's the one thing that really struck me. And we've had a lot of conversations about why can't we and what are ways around it? And they they won't budge on it. We're not Ashley Madison and we're not looking to ask anyone to do things, but users should be able to control what they want to take in and what they don't. 
And I don't know, I've been on a lot of different focus groups and panels with people that are 18 to 25 years old and like polyamorous is a thing. They're in different types of relationships and define themselves differently. So we have to be on that the side of like, not everything is this Christian hetero relationship. And so it's just interesting because I don't think they don't come off as a conservative company. So you're just shocked when you find these things out. Yeah, it's not like my forthcoming app, Homewrecker, which is just, we take the second <laughs> E out. So it's got that classic R. But you're ready to ruin it all. You know, if I were marketing that, I'd understand being a little mad about it. You know, me in the office, like, you don't understand. I only want to target people in committed relationships where they're happy and make them unhappy. You know, that's not what's happening. I think you make a great point, too, about love is eternal until it isn't anymore. Yeah. And like, we're talking about a platform that maybe you didn't intend to ruin marriages and relationships, but sure as fuck you have. Definitely people have had a lot of issues or marriage problems because of what someone's posting on Instagram and, oh, you connected with an old flame. And like, it's not the intention of your platform, but there's always going to be that in social connection. And I don't think Facebook should ever be blamed for those things. People are, the creatives are their own misery in their own life. Like they're going to decide, let them have free choice. I don't see what's wrong with that. Yeah, I was going to bet my entire salary that Facebook has ruined more relationships than any dating app has. But also potentially started more. On the flip side, maybe they've ruined a ton, but they've started a lot of new relationships. You know, I would say there is a lot to be said for how they've reconnected people that you would normally never connect with. That is net positive. But yeah, to kind of hold other companies responsible for like, you know, not being home wreckers and you are like in a very similar space to us. And they're also in the dating space. Something is not consistent with that narrative, right? And not self-aware. No. And who, who has updated their relationship status on Facebook? I mean, I in the last not... 10 years, I mean, I don't know. And I mean, that to me is just where it's like such an off base way to decide this that, and, and I think about like the last time I probably updated my relationship status on Facebook when I was in high school and it was like, cute and fun to be married to your best friend on Facebook. I mean, like, (laughs) am I still married to one of my best friend in high school on Facebook? Perhaps. Is that why I haven't seen a Tinder ad? Like maybe like it, I mean, I just feel like it's so arbitrary. It is. And like, also just what are all the different types of relationships? I mean, we kind of have this debate. We have like 60 different or 50 to 65, like different types of gender identities And then sexual preferences in our app. Like we try to be like updating to be as progressive as we can in that space. And I'm even just constantly thinking about a lot what you see with the Gen Zers is the language is all different. I don't know if you've seen all these articles about like what emojis you shouldn't use anymore. Like the crying emoji is like what boomers use. You should never use that. I did see that. And I was like, oh, my top used emoji. They use a skull. They use a skull and crossbones because to them that means dead, like dead, I'm funny. But like the crying emoji they just know you're old right away. So like, I'm constantly, this is like, I'm like, oh shit, all the emojis mean different things. And there's combinations of emojis that they've created that mean different things. I digress. But in figuring out how they classify relationships, they don't say like boyfriend and girlfriend, and they don't say they're like dating. They say they're best friends. So I don't know if you guys watch like the BFF podcast on Barstool, but it's very funny because you can see Dave Portnoy kind of interacting with one of the TikTokers, Josh Richards. 
And like, they are not speaking the same language because Dave is like, but Josh, you have a girlfriend. I see you posting TikToks with your girlfriend in your bed. It's the same girl all the time. And Josh is like, it's my best friend. He's like, but you're dating. And he's like, but it's my best friend. I always knew I was very progressive for telling people they weren't my girlfriend. I'm really, really getting validated right now. Wow. (laughs) So much yelling and walking out of places and, you know, wow. I was ahead of it the whole time. And then there was this very common, like millennial term was friends with benefits. And when you say that to them, they don't know what the hell that means. They're like, what What? about what is friends with benefits? I don't know that term. And I was like, okay, all right. Like, so, so I think that in saying that it's like, there's so many different definitions and naming conventions that need to be updated. They need to be updated all the time that we all haven't updated our relationship status in 10 years, but also the things that we classified 10 years ago, aren't relevant to how you classify things now. Also, it's not something you're going to report on Facebook. When I was in high school, it was all about like making funny relationship statuses on Facebook. And like, why would you ever actually do that? I wonder if you were to change it. Maybe this could be a little experiment for us all. Like tonight, if I was to go in and change my status to like, it's complicated. Would I get 50 texts tomorrow being like, what happened? Did you and Matt break up? Are you getting divorced? Or do you think they're not even putting those updates in the feed anymore? Because that's a good question. Back in the day, because I'm older than you. But back in the day, it was the way when when Facebook was your main social platform, like what Snap and TikTok are now, it was a signal to the market that like, I might be in the market. So let all those inbound DMs and messages fly in. It was basically like putting an open for business sign. If you have the relationship status, the only reason why you have it is to brag, to make people feel worse. And then to be able to let that go to say, come hither, I'm open. All of you people that were holding back on dating me, now you know I'm on, I'm on the rocks. Send it our, my way. But I think they have more clever ways of signaling than we did, where they will signal that they're in a relationship or that they're open for business just by virtue of what they're posting on Instagram. I'm going to go update mine to has an Android and get 50 DMs that say, well, my dude's not fucking. <laughs> like, yeah, no shit. Come on. <laughs> Maybe that's your problem is everyone's seeing like things be posted with your aunt. They used to also tell you what you were, what device you were posting on. My Blackberry photos. And it's like, with your Blackberry. Hit me up on BBM. They're like, Lee, I don't understand it. It's not automatic. You're taking the time to post, post it from my Google Pixel 4 XL. You're typing it manually. Why? But yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think that you see the signaling now. You, you don't need to say words. You see images and you know what people are up to. For sure, you know it. And people have just gotten more crafty at like posting a sexy image that says you're like, probably don't have a boyfriend if you're posting a picture like that. Or if like, you know, if you're cuffed up, you're posting pictures of your relationship all the time. Like the most engagement I got, I don't post anything anymore just because working at Vayner, like fully exhausted me of any type of creativity for my own personal social media presence. But you know, when I, when I got married on the 31st of December through a drive in a drive-thru, I feel like I had to post a photo. It was like the most engagement I ever got. I heard from people that straight up, I thought hated me that I haven't talked to in years. Bridges burned, but for some reason, everybody liked that goddamn photo. Why? You don't even like me. Why is posting a wedding photo the thing that like drives people to inter- interact and engage? It's just bizarre. It's, 
it's social exchange theory. I mean, people are just, they expect that like, that's like what they're supposed to do in society and how social media has even like changed just general user behavior. There's a lot of things that, yeah, like you were kind of mentioning changing your status and those kind of things would all be for signaling outwardly to, you know, friends, family, and, and beyond that either in a relationship or you're out of relationship and those kind of things. And everyone then flocks to respond and congratulate or console and those kind of things. And I think that's still something that's kind of like proliferated out. I also uh, wonder if like maybe that one Instagram post got more play in the algo because it was wedding based. Like, do you think that like they're thr- like, I won't say throttling because I think that sounds very sophisticated, but do you think that they, and I haven't looked at this cause we don't, we actually don't post a ton of content on Instagram anymore, um, on Tinder, but are things that are relationship focused getting more spread and more impressions than just like a plain photo of something basic. I don't know. I also thought about that. I was like, is it just more people responding or do more people see it? Do they know that wedding shit goes crazy on Facebook? Is that like a thing that they know on the back end? So it kind of puts it more prevalent. I, I heard know. a stat many years ago that Facebook could figure out or determine like within a, a week or so of when you would be in a relationship with with someone based off of all the data and the signaling and the viewing of each other's profiles and all those kind of things that they they know or they could use a data scientist to like figure that out. And so I'm I'm sure that there is a ton of just data warehouses of just packed with all of this information in terms of what performs best uh, on the feed. Uh, And I'm sure a lot of it is relationship based and wedding and all that kind of stuff going on with that. There was a report that I saw about the cost of weddings and it's directly correlated. The, The rise and increase in weddings and not just the actual wedding day, but just like all of the events that lead up to the wedding how much more money people were spending and emphasis from like engagement parties to, you know, destination bachelorette trips to the wedding itself. And it was directly correlated with the rise of Facebook, Instagram, and social media. A nice wedding went from being 30 to $40,000 is now $150,000. You know, that's only the culmination of four events prior to that, that cost people tons of money to attend as well, because it really becomes more about the wedding being in service of having good pictures to post than being in service of the people having a good time at the event, which is like just so sad, you know, in itself that like people are doing these things for the photos and not to like celebrate a union. But like we look at all these trends. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that we're kind of always looking at at Tinder that just kind of understand human behavior and relationships and like what's changing. And I think a lot of things will definitely change for the better. Do you guys have a take on what might be here to stay in terms of changes after the whole pandemic? Because that's something I'm going to be honest, Nicole, I'm asking this from a personal angle out of deep fear, because (laughs) I'm going to be honest, I'm a much better live band than a studio band. And that's because I'm a horrible studio band. So if I can never again, go out and just mouth off in public and, you know, have things work because everyone is 
already all tied up from the apps. It's, whew, it's going to be tough. So I'd, I'd love to hear about this. Everybody's so curious. I think it's bright things ahead. What we know is all of the apps across the board saw increased engagement because of COVID. And it didn't even matter the age demo. People just had the time. But the way in which they were using the apps was, I think, much less transactional, meaning like you couldn't really transact because people were under a lockdown. So they were taking more time to just converse, but they were also just taking more time. Like it was an entertainment vehicle for them. And because social was kind of a weird place to be because of everything going on, the political, economic and news environment was so heavy. None of that really exists in our product because we don't have content like that. So I think we did see a lot of people do what I call suspending the seriousness by spending more time on Tinder. And people were like super funny about just updating their profiles more and being like very witty and very raw and very like real about who they are and what they're about. To be quite honestly, you would have actually gotten a, a huge kick out of it. Cause I, I, I read some of these bios and I'm like, this is hilarious and amazing. And only in this moment and only on Tinder could this be a, a bio? I think coming out of this, there's two things that I think were probably mismessaged, which was, I think we saw a lot of apps promoting virtual dating and promoting like all these ways that are still special during COVID to meet up, like sitting on a bench six feet away, still fucking cool, still great. Like, yay. Or do a video chat. And I think people thought that that's what the majority of people were actually doing And what we know is that very few people actually dated that way. And the most of the people that stayed in the dating game during the past year, 44% of them chose to not follow any fucking social distancing rules. They just didn't, they ignored all of them. So this idea that everyone was like dating in a socially distanced way was one that was really propped up by the marketers, not me, and propped up by the news press that was just looking for any type of like, hey, a guy in a bubble, in Brooklyn, went on a date in a bubble wrapped suit with a girl and they're still together. And like, those are the one-offs that just was not the majority. So I think what you see is the desire for human connection is a basic need. We literally die if people do not touch us and if we don't get that kind of engagement. And I think that through the pandemic, people have suffered a lot of not having that type of interaction. And it only strengthens the value proposition once things start to open back up that people are going to be in the game. They're going to be in it in a renewed sense, and they're going to want it more than ever. And that at the end of the day, a virtual video date is never going to be a replacement for a real date. And I think you'll see that people have also, I think, had just like more expectations to just meet people new, meet new people. Um, doesn't have to be for a boyfriend or girlfriend. Like they're just happy to go on a date with somebody. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. There's going to be less like make me a man and boyfriend shopping. I've got to be six foot, got to be this, got to be that. Like, I think we saw as, you know, people become more comfortable with like the dating category over the past 10 years that sometimes they treat it as shopping for another individual when that's not really the way life goes down. So I think it's going to be booming. I'm extremely bullish because Tinder is a product. It was the most social dating app that was ever made. And it was made that way on purpose. 
And what I say social, not like it's a social network. It was literally made so that when you go out to parties and bars, you know who to talk to in that party and bar. People use it when they travel. The proximity and the convenience that Tinder brought to the whole category is really what made it amazing. So for us, what we didn't see happening during this pandemic is Tinder's a good companion app. It's a good app for when you're going out at night and you don't know what's going to happen. It's a good app if you're going to Germany and you don't know anybody there. None of the other apps behave that way. And so I think what we expect is that people will still engage and interact online, but we will get the use cases as people become more mobile and can have a social life that we saw pre-pandemic come back in a really strong way. Like, remember what it was like to be in a bar and you'd be in the West village and you're like, I'm just going to swipe. And there's somebody two miles away. And then you and your friends go meet up with that, like random stranger. And there's just serendipity. That's what makes Tinder like really special. And I think people are going to want that spontaneity and serendipity back in their lives because we've all had groundhog day for over a year now, everything is planned. And the only spontaneity we've had is like government insurrection and a pandemic that just won't stop. So I'm like super positive about it. I don't know how you, how do you guys feel if if you're single or not single? Does that scare you? Does that make you feel hopeful? I'm so relieved. I can't even express it. The (laughs) video dating thing wasn't real. I'm so relieved that wasn't real. I like was aware of that being proposed as the prospect. And that was just a grim moment. I was like, Absolutely not. To be clear, I'm not espousing some sort of weird opposite where you're being incredibly unsafe, but uh, no, I, I was I was terrified of like, yup, that's it. We're going to hop on video and be like, so what do you like to do? I was just like, absolutely not. I, I can't do that. No. And like, I think the biggest Gen Z misconception is people like, oh, they prefer to have online relationships. That just became normal. Like they prefer to just play games together on Twitch. Like they don't ever want to meet in person. Like we talk about Gen Zers, like there's these antisocial freaks that only know how to speak to their phone. And like, they are the most desperate to get back out there and meet in person. And most people prefer that. Like that's why everyone prefers to interact. People aren't just finding insurmountable amounts of joy playing Animal Crossing together. That's not like better than going out and having a good night. It just was better relative to everything else that was going on. People found other ways to interact. I mean, it's so resilient of human nature to find different ways to have fun and connect with people, but it doesn't replace the the need and the desire that like in-person is better. And that physical contact is actually a pretty critical part to having an intimate relationship. I, for one, can't wait to get back (laughs) out there and be punched in the face outside an area bar. I mean, Um, your face just must be like a long year of recovery for you. Absolutely. When I say that I've got a new skincare regimen, it's not what most people are thinking. (laughs) Um, Nicole, this has all been tremendous. Is there for this time that's coming up, which includes both everything with 14.5 and IDFI and, and privacy concerns, but also a veritable salmon spawning run up a river of people seeking out human contact again. Is there one, you know, Nicole Parlopiano's powerful principle for marketing in 2021 when the floodgates are unleashed? Man, I just would say like, let's cut the bullshit and let's have some fun with this. I wish I could find something deeper to say, but you know, back to simpler times, back to the things that matter. 
back to no longer toiling in spreadsheets and attribution models and trying to track a person you don't even know through a funnel. Back to just using psychology and human nature as law for how we should interact. So I'd just say like, I'm looking forward to, to back to simpler times and, and not spending so much time making things more complicated than they need to be. Things like dating and things like what do people care about and what are they going to gravitate towards make them like my brand are like pretty simplistic questions that we've really over-engineered to a degree that is just not necessary, right? And so hopefully we'll all have a lot more time to think about the things that are important and get back to the basics. It's tremendous. And I think that it's a deep take to have. It's, it's very so, deep. So yeah. meta for a marketer, right? Did I like move out to California and just become an incredible hippie? <laughs> just, just I don't know. New, yeah. I feel like a New Jersey swamp was drying up as you said that. <laughs> it probably was. But I also tried to start with cut the bullshit. So at least I swore in one of my one of my takeaways, but um, yeah, it must just be this California air that makes me feel so positive and meta about it all. But I don't know. You must have know. found I those think... CBD drinks. I must have had a CBD drink before <laughs> the, before this call. <laughs> oh. Nicole, to ask you the question that we ask every guest on the podcast, other than this like hyper data-driven approach to marketing, what is your other biggest gripe about things that we deal with day-to-day in a marketing media world that you wish just would go away? Or get better. Or get better. I was hopeful that maybe we'd come to a time where there'd be less executives that don't understand social media at this point. I'm still floored at the low level of digital and social competence that I see in the marketplace. And I thought we'd be at a moment where this should be like ingrained since these platforms have been around for a really long time. But I think the understanding of the landscape at all executive levels, not just, you know, the CMO would really make everyone's job a lot easier. I seem chill about iOS 14 because I understand what it means. I'm an old dog, so I understand how we attributed marketing before there was digital. I came up in understanding how do you take a TV ad campaign and prove that it drove registrations to your website. There wasn't so many places in digital to put your money. You couldn't measure things. You were mostly dealing in offline channels. And so I think the hardest thing for marketers during this shift, it's how to explain this to non-marketers, what this means. And our finance and operations and executive teams have gotten so used to and comfortable with marketing that is these dollars in, these dollars out. And they are going to be uncomfortable with the fact that there isn't this certainty in the marketing budgets. And they love performance marketing and they love growth marketing because it's very tied to ROI, which is the language that they understand. So I would say that explaining what it means I think is easy between us, but when we're trying to get a whole organization and everyone else out there to understand what we can and cannot measure and how do we think about capital allocation and investment is going to be hard. And what I hope we don't see, because I riffed on and on with brand, is I hope we don't see marketing budgets 
just get decreased because we can't have that certainty and measurement anymore. And I hope that they get reallocated to other things, but I think there is a very real chance that a lot of these budgets will just go away because they're uncomfortable with it because we can't measure every single thing. And I don't think that a lot of organizations, there is this consistent tension that marketing is a cost center and not a revenue driver. So I would hate to see marketing go back to being looked at as a brand cost center and not as a growth driver, just because we can't measure everything. But I think that people will only understand it when it actually happens. It's really hard to explain it until they can feel what it's really like. Totally. How long do you think that will take post the old 14.5 coming out? We've talked a lot about it. It's like, do we want to get a sense of what this feels like before it hits so that everybody's ready for it? Do we want to like change the way we do things now so that it doesn't feel like the rug is, you know, ripped out from underneath us? I think it'll take six months after, as I've been talking to different colleagues about how other, you know, heads of marketing are navigating this change. The SKI networks, the solve for not knowing what's happening is they're just going to take the historical performance of these platforms and attribute the revenue that those platforms drove six months prior before the change to all the future volume that they drive going forward, which is actually ridiculous because if you're optimizing campaigns, you'd assume performance is going to fluctuate as the audiences fluctuate as like creative is a lever on that. So like saying if Facebook brought in 80 registrations or 80 sales of this sneaker or, you know, brought in 80 people to my sneaker website and 40 of those usually purchase product that that will stay standard for the next six months. And that's how you're going to forecast is sort of crazy, but that is a lot of what will be happening until we can get comfortable with more uncertainty than that. So using historical performance to dictate future, which is like, Doing something very retrospectively and something that has auction dynamics and happens kind of in real time. Yeah, that's probably not the best way to go about doing that. Yeah, but. and how are you going to like, are you going to shift money based on those principles? Like, are we going to actually like move dollars from different platforms based on that? Do I feel confident doing that? I mean, I think it gives you a, a great way to holistically split your budget to start with. But this idea that you can move money based on what's performing well and what isn't is no longer there, really. So I mean, then what? <laughs> you yeah, know? I mean, let, let's say any one of these platforms either launches a new format for their product or simply just starts dumping a lot more ads into something. You know, the, the equivalent of the IG stories have the up six months after this. You'll be looking at a platform's historical performance and all, all it takes is increasing the ad load in one part of the product and not the other. And you could argue that that's almost like a channel level change. It's like, oh yeah, no, don't, don't worry. TikTok is actually putting 40% of the ads in a place. There were no ads in this old data, but don't worry. President G, if you're listening to this, your glorious and honorable ways, we wish to learn them. But yeah, that's, that's completely insane. But I mean, until someone comes up with a better comprehensive alternative, you know, we're all going to be taking crazy pills. You have to go with your gut more. I mean, I think to answer your question, I think it's going to be uncomfortable for the rest of, of the year, because like for most companies, you're working on an annual budget and annual goals. And like when nobody really knows what's going on with this thing or how it's going to impact your business or when it's actually coming, no company is like really has financial plan for this. So 
And if we have to kind of think about different channels and different methods to connect with consumers, and there's a cost to that, that probably has to wait until, you know, Q4 or next year. So I almost feel like, did they let it drag into 2021? So it just messes with people more. Like, couldn't we just have a clean break, a demarcation? Cause that's the way like budgets go down, but you know, marketers have put all these big words to make it so that the CFO or the COO or the CPO doesn't understand what we're doing. The language we use puts a big barrier between us and everyone else. And it's just a, like the complexity that we've created for ourselves. And so I find it heightened uh, right now because it's clear to me, but I understand how it's not clear to someone who hasn't brand digital media or understands the dynamics you know, intimately. How could you even get them ready for that? Somebody needs to do a video of the dummy's guide to like what's going to happen with iOS 14.5. What does it mean? What could potentially happen? Like literally using stick figures. There's got to be a way to explain this, but I feel like nobody wants to make it clear because the people that understand it, so many people have something to lose. The platforms have something to lose. The agencies have something to lose. And if you're on the business side of it, you look to experts in the space to tell you how to navigate and the experts are not saying shit. So it's like, who can demystify this? I think would be extremely helpful. And I think anyone who wants to spin up a consulting gig of how to navigate this over the next six months, I think companies are going to be hiring for that for sure. You make a great point about the importance of incentives there. Everyone that I have talked to about this, you have to massively adjust for whatever their angle is. The strange balance between a lot of the people who are close to it have a lot to lose. And the few people out there who kind of are like, I don't give a shit. It's like, yeah, man, I I know that's, that's because you're like, either way this goes, it, it doesn't really impact you. It's, it's tough. It's yeah, iOS to isn't saying anything because they don't want people to know. Facebook doesn't know what to do and they can't tell us what to do because they don't want to tell us their product might not work as well. It's a cluster. Almost every other platform has been pretty quiet about it. They don't seem to be that concerned or as concerned as Facebook. So is Facebook like blowing this out of proportion or were they just caught with their pants down and all the other platforms kind of have yeah, some I other mean, solutions, you know, like you're in right. place? I think- I would say this, I think TikTok and Snap have really good, what you would call ad placements, brand ad placements. So Facebook is so programmatic and so auction-based and that product works really well. Whereas like Snap has, and we've been running on different placements in Snap, their auction tool is great, but you throw up like a branded lens, you'll see like insane, crazy efficiencies in cost per installs if you're massively creative. Same thing with TikTok, like TikTok, all disclosure, TikTok's top view, that first position just crushes anything else on TikTok. And those are not buys that a performance marketing team would touch. They're considered, you know, brand buys, but a good brand buy, if it's fucking good, it will have insane results. So I think that the other platforms, I mean, of course they have auction-based media, but they have these really, really sick, amazing placements that perform as if it's like direct response. And so I think that's why Facebook is feeling this is like, I can't think of a Facebook placement that does as well as a top view takeover or a branded lens. Well, it's the engagement and the video watching that you were talking about before of 
on Facebook and Instagram, I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Oh yeah. Wow. That ad. Interesting. Okay. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Whereas like if I go on and I mean, I'm going to make myself seem really young here because my friends that have recently gotten back into Snapchat, but like, I mean, yeah, some of those braided lenses, like mostly they're funny. And I'm like, can you believe this? But like, did I use a Doritos one? Yes. Do I remember that? Yes. Because it was so weird. I think it's like the branding of it or the, on TikTok, it's like consuming content. Like I'm not just skipping through every single thing. Like I go on TikTok to actually watch the videos on there. Like I'm not just scrolling. Well, on TikTok, they've kind of taken down the walls of what an ad looks like. Like you cannot. Oh yeah. hundred percent. On TikTok. Like you just can't. So like the ads on TikTok are like less annoying because they're yeah. like so endemic to the platform because it breaks all the creative rules that we've all had. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the difference is like, they've been ca- not caught with their pants down. They just don't have any ad products that like people want to buy that work in that way that have a good brand halo effect. I'm sorry, in feed and Instagram or like putting in stories, like I can't tell you the last thing that I saw that was memorable, or maybe I'm just seeing too much of it. I don't think they have a strong POV on video, not really. And like, whenever we would try to work with their creative workshop, like when I was on the Vayner side, they had best practices, but the best practices were all built off of best practices for advertising on TV, because at that point they were battling for TV dollars and the way that they could measure it and prove to executives at big banks and big CPG firms that Facebook works just as good as a TV ad was like making sure that the ad looked like an ad so people could remember it. And then I think we just got used to it and we got desensitized to it and people know how to turn it off because it's an ad. So I think all of the creative best practices were not like for Facebook, you can be like completely ridiculous and it doesn't have to look like a TV ad. It was, how do you take a TV ad and format it for a screen, for a mobile screen? It was never about like, how does the content break through in that environment? So I just don't think they ever had a POV on like how to win creatively because they didn't care. All of it was built off of back in the day, trying to prove to clients that digital was effective and impactful and chipping away at linear TV budgets. And it's funny now because- I think everybody knows how good they work. They are the linear TV of 10 years ago, but there's just other platforms that are chipping away at their budget. You know, I think it's good. And I listen, I don't count them out. I think it just forces them to be more competitive or maybe they were complacent because there was nothing else. Because like TV networks were their competition and blogs and publishers. And that's like not that competitive (laughs) from a tech engagement standpoint. (laughs) Definitely. This has been so great. Thank you, Nicole.